Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Political risk in Europe and how fund managers account for this. I want to bring in Tapan Dada. He is Global Head of Asset Allocation for Aon Hewitt in London. And uh, Tapan, I, I want to just sort of get a sense, zooming out, how do you model for the political risk that we're experiencing or seeing, uh, whether it's France's election or whether oh. it's potential uh, attacks that disrupt uh, a feeling of calm among investors and residents ah. alike? Yeah, well, to just to cut to the chase, I don't think it can be, I don't think it's modelable. But what you can do is do a, a range of scenarios which, um, which capture the, uh, the uncertainties that are involved. So you work on very rough rules of thumb in terms of probabilities of this or that happening, of Marine and Le Pen winning in France or, or losing, and you look at potential market outcomes from that vantage well, point. It's not a robust science. Tabat, what particular models are you creating right now? What scenarios are you forecasting that are maybe out of the mainstream consciousness, such as a Le Pen win? Yeah, well, one of the scenarios we're working with is that uh, the uh, the populist bandwagon um, essentially gathers steam, uh, and we have a, a number of uh, such political upsets, uh, which essentially bring in a, a stronger move towards what we call deintegration in Europe. That is a rollback of kind of European integration. Uh, and more widely, you know, thinking about U.S. developments as well, uh, we work, we're working on a scenario that rolls back globalization. You know, it takes us back a couple of decades, not necessarily back to the 30s, but certainly a rollback, a much more decisive rollback in globalization over and beyond what we've already seen over the last few years. I mean, there's already been some of that we shouldn't forget. But the scenario we're working with takes us back uh, some way further. Uh, and that's what we're really talking about. And that is prob- probably not a very good outcome for financial markets because, um, generally speaking, asset prices have gained on the back of uh, greater global integration, more trade, uh, more foreign investment, more capital flows. All of that has generally been market positive. And a, a decisive setback to that potentially brings, uh, brings some harm to market conditions. I don't want to take you back to decades, Tapan. I want you to just go back to June of 2016 and the Brexit vote. Uh, prior to that, what was your view as to what would happen in the United Kingdom? Well, we were working on the idea that it would be a close-run thing, uh, but we hadn't, uh, in common with the consensus majority view, we hadn't worked on the idea that, that Brexit was actually going to happen. Okay, so you missed uh, that one. We, may, we definitely missed that one. All right. Now, if you, what did you learn from that one that can be applied currently to people's actual portfolios rather than the big thing, 30,000-foot view? Great. I know there's a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. No one knows, has a crystal ball. We got all that. But as a professional, you got to make decisions. I think it's a matter of behavioral biases because we kind of take uh, certain things for granted. And you, you, one of the things that's, that's, that, that that's done is really questioned – the question, the role of the, the hidden biases that you have in your portfolio, you think, well, this is a, 
this this can't possibly be happening because it you know Brexit is going to make uh, a lot of folks worse off, so right. they can't possibly be voting for it. But actually, as it happens. Um, they did vote for it, despite the fact that they were going to be worse off from um, the result. So right now, Tappan, at Aon Hewitt, uh, what is your base case scenario and how are you advising people to allocate their money? Look, our base case scenario is that the world muddles through, that this populist bandwagon does not, um, as it were, strengthen, but that it's there, out there, and it is a risk that we face, uh, and periodically there will be setbacks. But we're not working on the view that, that globalization is seriously threatened. I think, as I, I, I in my earlier, as from my earlier remarks, we think that globalization, the base of globalization has clearly slowed, but we're not working on a big reversal. Uh, and on the back of that, um, it's difficult at this point to argue that there are major, major risks to markets from that phenomenon, from the, from the, Phenomenon of more political upset. So does that now, mean full the, in on the, the, stocks the, and, and and sort of a sort of a normal single yeah, party type portfolio? That, that, yeah, that tells us that that political risk is a factor, but it's not necessarily going to to be a um, um, a something that that really knocks the stuffing out of stocks. In, in, in stocks could be vulnerable for other reasons, you know, rising interest rates. Um, we, we can think of a number of other factors that could come into play. Well, there are always but, going to be a but, lot of factors. We know this. But just well, help exactly. us. Fo- look, can we just focus for just a second? What is the, the market that you see in Europe right now that is shunned by investors? The market that is shunned by investors? Well, the, the markets that have been more recently shunned by investors are European sovereign bonds, where essentially spreads with the, the safe haven play of Germany have risen because the market is concerned that uh, Italy or, or, or even France might break away. Uh, and there, uh, the, the, the sell-off has not been of, of, on, a, on a particularly large scale as to make them particularly attractive markets in terms of that play. But certainly those are markets that have been shot. Look, I think the issue is that I don't think – I think the market's working on a view that, that – this, the European political upsets are not a serious factor. So it depends which side of that debate you're on. We're on the, on the side of that debate in such a way that, that we, we regard these political factors as being out there, but that they don't completely upset the apple cart. So we're not working on, what's, sorry, go on. No, what's the, the number one most attractive asset class to you right now? The number one most attractive asset class in, in a broad market context remains equity markets. Where in um, particular? And, and in, 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 in England? In, in the U.S.? Oh, in a, in a regional context, we, we prefer the markets that, that, are, that have more value. Uh, and there we like emerging have markets? emerging markets. Emerging markets in Japan stand out as having long-term value. So intrinsic value, in terms of the way we, we look at markets, is strongest for those markets. Um, the U.S. probably comes out at the bottom of the pile, simply because by, by every valuation indicator we use, U.S. stocks are simply expensive, which doesn't mean that it will roll over tomorrow, but it does mean that expected returns from the U.S. market over the next few years are likely to, to disappoint. Um, whereas we look at EM or we look at Japan, and to a degree in Europe, you know, taking into account local uncertainty and a few other factors like Brexit into account, Europe doesn't look too bad either. The U.S. comes off relatively poorly in this in this way of looking at markets. All right. Thanks very much. Uh, Tapin Dada, Global Head of Asset Allocation, Aon Hewitt, joining us from London.
Pim, you know, there's one big issue that a lot of people have been pointing to as evidence that consumer creditworthiness is deteriorating fairly rapidly. We have seen an increase in losses on uh, subprime auto loans. We have seen an increase in loss provisions by some of the biggest uh, consumer finance lenders. We're talking about Ally. We're talking about Santander. We're talking about Capital One. A lot of these new, uh, a lot of these uh, captive, uh, non-captive finance arms uh, have been definitely suffering. And we want to talk a little bit more about uh, what this might mean for not only the banks and the lenders that are, you know, extending credit to some of these uh, companies, but also uh, what this means for the broader economy and the auto industry. Uh, I want to bring in Ryan O'Connell. He's a senior analyst uh, for financials covering the allies of the world, the Capital Ones. Uh, and uh, he is here with us. He's from Bloomberg Intelligence, and he is with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. You know, I was struck by Ally's latest results, where they increased their uh, their expectation for uh, loan losses. They also decreased their expectation for resale values of used cars. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the most notable aspects of this and how severe uh, this could potentially crimp their earnings in this coming year. Oh, great. Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on the show, Lisa. Uh, so with regard to Ally, and I'd say it, it, the read-through is also for Capital One uh, and other, other lenders like that. And, and I'd break it into two parts. I think starting back in about June of last year, we started to see cracks in the market for subprime borrowers. And so that's what this is really all about. So no need to sound the alarm on prime borrowers. They're still fine, healthy economy, et cetera. The reason why Ally spooked people yesterday, and they did, is a couple of things. One, they keep jacking up their estimates of how much their credit losses are going to go up. And two, just as you mentioned, used car sales are plummeting much faster than people expected. Uh, so people have been expecting about 5%. It's about 7% heading in the wrong direction. So why is that important? A uh, couple of things. One, for people who have big leasing portfolios, which, by the way, is not Ally. Obviously, if the prices of cars go down when it comes off lease and you want to resell the car, that can create some uh, earnings hits. Who is that, by the way? Uh, well, that would be more of, of the captives. Uh, Capital One actually has a fairly large leasing portfolio. I don't cover them. JP Morgan is also involved in leasing. Uh, so those kind of companies could be looking at that. Uh, and then the other thing is that even if you don't have a big leasing portfolio, if you have to repossess a car, and every once in a while the allies of the world do, then obviously if the value of that falls, that can increase your credit provisions. Has this all been con uh, put into the context of the price, either of the bonds or the stocks, that, in other words, the valuation that investors are seeking? Well, yeah, great question. Uh, so I cover things on the bond side, um, uh, and there, there has been a bit of a reaction. So if you look at, say, Capital One, it's, you know, big, large bank, all that kind of stuff, uh, its bonds are trading, let's say, about 25 basis points behind J.P. Morgan. They bounced around. Uh, you know, at the wides, they were like at about uh, 75. They've come in a bit. They got squeaky clean on top of J.P. Morgan. People have rethought about it, and they've moved out. Ally is uh, below investment grade, so they trade about 150, 150 uh, behind J.P. Morgan. Uh, those bounds have bounced around a lot. At the worst, they were about 200. They squeaked into about uh, 100. Now we're back to 150. Can you put the uh, increase in... 
provisions for, for loan losses into perspective? I mean, yes, they have increased, but how do they compare to historical periods, not you know necessarily the best of credit times like we've seen? Oh, in sure. Great question. So I, I think we'll, if we step back, uh, in 2015, Allies loan losses were running about 50 basis points, a half a percentage point of the portfolio. So really pretty great. And then in June of last year, Allies started saying, well, you know, life is changing a little bit. And so they, they ended the year at a run rate of about, let's call it, uh, 100 basis points. So from about 50 to 100 in one year. Uh, and then this year, what they're saying, well, we thought it was going to be 120, might actually be more like about 140. So it is starting to ratchet up a lot. When you say 140, are oh, I'm you sorry, saying, 140 basis points. So it's like 1.4% of their overall loan books, or what is that? What is that equal to? Is that? Oh yeah, is? sorry for the bond jargon, Lisa. Uh, so yeah, about 1.4% of their auto lease book, uh, auto loan book, uh, which is really Ally's main business. They have some other businesses, but they're they're not really that important. Ryan, is uh, is any of this connected with the very long duration loans that were available during the financial crisis? So uh, I think what we're seeing here is that uh, there has been more competition in the auto loan market, um, and uh, so they've been lengthening the terms of their loans. Uh, so, for example, some cases are going out to seven years, and bear in mind that a lot of these loans are on used cars. So in Allies' case, for example, about 40% of their loans are on used cars. You start out with the car that's already been out for about three years, I'm not saying Ally does this, and you tack on another seven years, that's a lot of lifespan for a car. And thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. Giving us the detail. Ryan O'Connell is a senior analyst financials for Bloomberg Intelligence, telling us about the automobile credit market. Fox, we were talking this morning about Beyond Meat, and this is a plant-based burger. And you had the great question. You looked at me and you said, what is this? What is it made out of? Um, to answer that question, let's bring in the CEO of Beyond Meat, Ethan Brown. He comes to us from Los Angeles. Ethan, let's start with that. What is Beyond Meat? Well, first, thank you very much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. And, and um, it's a great question. So, so what we're after at Beyond Meat is taking... Uh, all the great things about animal protein or meat and building those directly from plants. And if, so if you think about what meat is, meat is essentially five things. It's amino acids, it's lipids, it's very small amount of carbohydrates, it's minerals, and it's water. None of those things are exclusive to the animal. They're all present throughout the plant kingdom. And so what we're doing is essentially taking all of those resources from non-animal sources, and then we're architecting or building them in the same way that you would present animal protein. So we're basically bypassing the animal and delivering a piece of meat directly from plants. We're not suggesting it's a fake meat or something like that. It's simply a meat that's been built directly from plants. It has all the same parts. It presents in the same form. It satiates in the same way. and provides the same nutritional benefits. Well, Ethan, I'm, maybe just uh, if you could explain uh, what plants are actually in this meat or this meatless sure. meat? What, what's, what is sure. it made of? 
Sure. And, and so what's interesting about it is once you start to think of the plant kingdom as a source of direct protein, not as a source of feed for animals that then convert it into protein, uh, it, you can pick uh, and, and you can take amino acids or protein from a huge variety of plant sources. And so in this case, we use pea protein, but you could literally use hundreds, if not thousands of different crops to pull the uh, requisite set of amino acids that you need to create a piece of meat. All right. Now, you say you use pea protein. Yes. Is this food engineering? Because isn't part of the whole reason to focus on vegetables and fruits is that its natural state is mm -hmm. what is important in terms of how it delivers the nutrients to your body? Sure. And so that's a really great question. And so the way I think about this is a tale of two processes. You can either take protein directly from a plant and you can use what we do, which is heating, cooling, and pressure to essentially align it in the form of muscle or meat. Uh, or you can take that same plant matter and run it through an animal, and then that would be presented on the plate as a piece of meat. So we argue that's actually a more direct and less processed way of providing protein to the center of the plate. Now, it does take protein out of one form and put it into another, but if you've had pasta or if you've had um, any number of, of products like a, um, a snack bar or something like that, it's run through the same system. It's essentially applying heating, cooling, and pressure to, to align the proteins so they take on the same texture and presentation of, of animal protein or meat. Ethan, how much has your business expanded over the past few years? You know, it's been amazing. So when I started the business in 2009, um, it was uh, definitely a push. You know, it was something that we had to go out there and try to convince people of. Something has happened in the last, I'd say, even two to three years, whereby the American consumer is actively looking for the solution. They want it to work. And that's to our benefit because, you know, we are not perfect yet, right? We still have miles to travel with respect to perfectly replicating a piece of animal protein or meat. But the consumer is hungry for the solution. They want to continue to enjoy, uh, you know, burgers and hot dogs and steaks, et cetera. But they're beginning to understand that there may be a better way to produce uh, those products. And so uh, we see an amazing uh, level of interest in what we're doing. And with every kind of centimeter in improvement we make, we welcome in hundreds of thousands more people to the brand as the products get better and better. And so we're, we're growing, you know, at a clip of 100%, uh, you know, this year over last year. Um, we've had, you know, consistently over the last year problems filling orders. So it's a wonderful position to be in and one that's very gratifying. Is there any evidence that suggests that the combination of amino acids, lipids, water, carbohydrates, and so on, the trace minerals that you're describing, is there any evidence that reconstituting them in this form of a processed food is any better for an individual, not the environment right now, but for the individual consuming the product and consuming the actual meat, if that's what they choose? Sure. And, and so the, the way I would look at that is um, you know, what, what's missing, right? And so we can, again, we know the blueprint of meat. We understand its composition, and we have access to those materials from the plant kingdom. But what can we leave out? We can leave out cholesterol, for example. So our products have no cholesterol. And I think there's a, a, a very uh, well-established medical literature uh, around cholesterol. And, and, uh, and so you know, that's just one example. Uh, there are other examples of, of the ways which we feel we are, are healthier than a piece of animal protein. But that's the most obvious. Ethan, uh, one thing that I thought was notable is that Tyson, known for its chickens, have a 5% 
investment, a minority stake in Beyond Meat. Uh, what was their reasoning when they when they made this investment? Why why do they want to go basically against the whole thesis of their company, which is that people like meat? Right. Um, so if I, if I could maybe offer just one comment on that. So I, I don't view it as going against their thesis. Um, their thesis is they're going to provide protein to the world. And, uh, and our thesis is also that people love meat, like, so that we're not in conflict in either of those uh, um, agendas. Uh, we just feel that just like you know, um, most people are using um, uh, mobile phones over landlines today, that there can be a transition to a new form of meat. And Tyson sees that, and I think they're excited about it, and I have to applaud them. I mean, they are, of all the companies out there, they are leaning in heavily to, we want to be a protein provider. We're not going to get hung up on the fact that, you know, um, it has to come from animals. It can come from directly from plants in the case of Beyond Meat. So they're making an investment in what I think they believe is a shift toward more plant-based meat. How much does this cost compared to uh, meat, traditional meat? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. So, you know, if you if you look at our production facilities, we are you know extremely small relative to global meat processing, right? So, um, you know, we're going to have a premium because of that. But as we expand, uh, there's nothing to stop us from lowering our prices to the point where we can compete and even be lower than the the, the price of meat because we've taken out the middleman. If you've taken any economics course, which I'm, I'm sure you have. Uh, you know, the number one thing they say in operations is, you know, get rid of the bottleneck, uh, you know, generate efficiencies, and you can lower costs. And, and if you think about the animal as the bottleneck, we've taken out a pretty big bottleneck in the production of meat. No, well, we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks very much. Uh, Ethan Brown is the chief executive of Beyond Meat, uh, based in Los Angeles. Well, uh, President Donald Trump, he was in Detroit this week on Wednesday. He announced a rollback of fuel economy standards for cars and trucks. Now, this was all put in place uh, by the Obama administration. The goal, 54 and a half miles per gallon by 2025. Here to tell us more about this is Dr. Richard Newell. He is the president and the chief executive of Resources for the Future, based in Washington, D.C. Dr. Newell, thank you very much for being with us. Maybe you could just lay out the cost connections related to these fuel economy standards and what is, in your mind, going to change now. Yes, well, fuel economy standards have been set for uh, several decades now, uh, by the Department of Transportation in order to uh, increase the energy efficiency or fuel economy of the uh, U.S. passenger fleet. And uh, in 2011, the uh, Obama administration combined these fuel economy standards with uh, standards on carbon dioxide emissions, which were uh, required by a, you know, a, a judgment of the Supreme Court that uh, these emissions needed to be regulated. And so since 2011, we've had uh, joint actions by the Department of Transportation and the Environmental Protection Agency to uh, reduce uh, gasoline consumption from automobiles really for a few different purposes. Uh, one purpose is to uh, simply save people money uh, by uh, requiring that the automobiles that are available for purchase um, will uh, use less gasoline. So that's one key attribute of these standards. Another is to reduce their carbon dioxide emissions, which is uh, viewed as an important um, 
element of these regulations to address uh, global climate change. And finally, another aspect of these uh, regulations is to uh, improve U.S. energy security by reducing oil imports. And so during the standard-setting process, um, each of these different factors is considered uh, by the, these two agencies in order to figure out what the right level of the standard is. Well, Dr. Newell, as Pim uh, mentioned earlier, so uh, President Trump is talking in Detroit with some of the leaders and is talking and saying that he will roll back some of these uh, provisions that were implemented implemented by former President Obama. Just how big of a rollback will this be? Well, it will. They, they will need to go through the same types of uh, analysis that were were done, uh, you know, in 2011 uh, by the Obama administration, by the Department of Transportation and the Environmental Protection Agency. So. Uh, uh, standards of, of this type, when they're put into place, there's uh, many different analyses that go into it. Uh, one important one is called a regulatory impact analysis, where the benefits and the costs of the regulation are weighed. And so it, they, they, it looks like they intend to um, open, open up uh, for midterm review uh, the, corporate fuel econ the corporate average fuel economy standards. And so what they will presumably be looking at is changes that have taken place since these analyses were first done in 2011. What has changed since then and what direction of change in the regulations might that motivate? And so if you look, for example, a key attribute here is going to be changes in the price of gasoline. And since the original analysis, the price of oil and the price of gasoline have uh, dropped by about 30% in real terms. So other things equal, this would tend to, to tend to point to a rationale for weakening the standards relative to what was originally put into place. Another, another key factor, though, is the, um, the value of reducing the carbon dioxide emissions that come from burning gasoline. Um, there's a number called the social cost of carbon, which is the, the value, uh, the monetized value of reducing carbon dioxide emissions. Um, since 2011, the number that has been used by the federal government has increased actually by about 60%. So that would point in the other direction in terms of uh, strengthening the standards. However, I'll, I'll add a very important caveat there, which um, the Trump administration has signaled its intention to also reduce the, the value that it places on, uh, on addressing climate change. That's been quite evident in a number of their remarks. And so depending upon what they do there, that could point, uh, you know, I would, I would guess they would change it in the way that would point downward in terms of uh, the regulatory stringency. Just real quick, Dr. Newell, what has the frustration been like among your peers about that last point that you talk about with respect to this administration's approach to climate change? Well, they very clearly, not just on uh, corporate average fuel economy standards, but on uh, regulation of emissions from electric power plants under the uh, Clean Power Plan, uh, the approach toward uh, budgets, uh, federal budgets that uh, invest in research related to climate change and invest in, you know, actions taken to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. Um, you know, there's any number of different changes that the administration has either already put into place or appears ready to put into place that um, really just don't take the climate change threat seriously. 
Um, and that's, you know, there's any number of remarks made by both the president himself as well as uh, major uh, leaders within the Trump administration that point in that direction. Dr. Richard Newell, thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Richard Newell is the president for uh, president of Resources for the Future, uh, talking about the Trump administration's rollback of emission standards. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.